The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Scripture reading today is from Isaiah 58, 6-10. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, I want to welcome all of you here. My name is Stacy Croft. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, preach here and I'm here pastoring primarily. And last week, if you were here, I was running in and out of the door. Uh, it doesn't happen often. This week, I am here. And uh, last week, we did, I do that every now and then uh, with some of the other uh, location pastors here at Music Row or Old Hickory or Cool Springs just to uh, help one another, just to have a Sunday off. Um, and I was giving Scott Sauls a little break. Uh, but I am here primarily. I'm here this morning, and I would love to meet you. If I haven't Gotten to meet you already. Uh, I know we have several guests this morning, um, and I'd love to meet you right outside or right after the service. Just grab me, or if hopefully you put your email down on that black pad. I email everybody personally and um, who are visiting or just would love to grab coffee and uh, let me know because I'd love to get to know you. Uh, I do want to welcome our university students back. A lot of you are here and. Uh, as we go to 9-11 service, uh, I know that'll, that'll equally be helpful to you <laughs> to have an 11 o'clock service. Uh, and for many of you, uh, we do want to make room, uh, as uh, Nashville is making room, for you to uh, take hold of this church and invite and invest in the worship and invite others and, um, and really do that. I, I remember when I was actually in college at Baylor, um, and I was wondering about churches, and, and there was a big uh, Baylor University in Waco, Texas. There's not much in Waco. Most people here know Waco because of the Magnolia Farms and uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines and that whole thing. That, that was not there. Um, uh, when I was there, there was actually not much uh, there, and still Waco is somewhat kind of like that. Uh, but there was a ministry to um, the poor there that was really... Uh, a beautiful thing. It was a, a simulation thing. I actually looked it up to see if they still have it, and they do. It's, it's under a, called Mission Waco. And um, you can actually uh, do this thing, um, it's like a, a, a poverty simulation for about 48 hours. And I remember a couple of my fraternity brothers did it at the time. Um, and one in particular came back, and his just description of his uh, moments and uh, what it was like for him to be in positions to give all his stuff and then leave, out, walk out the door of wherever the offices were of Mission Waco and to uh, just live for 48 hours really not knowing where his next meal would come, uh, being, having to stand on uh, road corners, literally holding signs, having to make his own sign, um, asking for money, 
trying to figure out where would he live and do the next 48 hours. One of the things that he described as he was on the street corner was people saw him. Of course, he was near the campus enough to where some of our other fraternity brothers drove by and were like, wait a minute, what is he doing there? And he was able to receive in that moment. But what we see this in this passage is this very thing. It's the question that my fraternity brother, who was a Christian, is a Christian, was bringing up to us after doing this is how do we really understand the empathy, the connection that Christianity has to the poor? Uh, the Bible is effusive about God's relationship to the poor. Uh, and yet, through our history, particularly history of Christianity, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Karl Marx, the leader of that as if to say, and the big phrase that everybody may have heard, if you haven't, philosopher Karl Marx, who said, religion, or in this case, in some sense, Christianity is the opium of the masses. What he was speaking to was the fact that Christianity, or religion, dulls those in poverty. It doesn't help them rise out of it. It actually oppresses them. And there has been some of that, historically, would be the case. But the reality is, is what this passage in, in the whole of the Bible is saying to us is what, is, what does God really care about? And who does He care about? He doesn't necessarily negate those who may have money, but He also says that I really am for those who are poor. What does God love? Who does God love? And do we understand that? As we in this room are, have come from a variety of backgrounds, uh, some of you I know, some of you I don't. But what does it mean for us to address that? This passage in particular was talking to the people of God. We've been looking at Isaiah. We're almost finished. We're coming to the conclusion of Isaiah. And what it's drawing out is the people of God are really trying to connect to God. It even begins by saying, is this not the fast that I choose? A fast was a very pious, spiritual thing. It was a way to connect to God by depriving yourself of food, Right? But God is trying to say, and this is what he's getting at, he's saying, you may have a lot of piety, but do you care about what I care about? Do you care about connecting to the heart of God? And if we do, we've got we to push ourselves for a moment to think, this passage is telling us to ask that question. Do we know what it means for us to not oppress or but, but to be in a position to bring the light of the gospel, that we are that light. This may be for you at the beginning, and you may be hearing me this now, and I want to throw this disclaimer out. And as somebody who grew up in Texas in one of the most affluent areas in Texas itself, this is not a passage to beat us down and say, you need to be giving to the poor. It's more than that. It's to encourage us to show you who you are, not what you aren't. That we are, if we follow God, if we claim to be Christians, that we live in the heart of what God cares about and to redirect our minds that way. It tells us two things in this passage, in these few verses that we're going to look at. One is what we are to proclaim, what we are to proclaim, right? What, what, are we, what we boldly are to say. And secondly, what we practice, what do we become, right? What, what do we see? So what we proclaim and what we practice, those simple things that are a part of this. You know, as, as this begins, it says <clears throat> in verses six and nine, it says it twice, kind of almost bookending. 
It says, is this not the fast I choose to lose the, loose the bonds of wickedness under the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? It says it twice, right? And then comes back around again in verse 9. If you take away the yoke from your midst. There's obviously some sort of pressure, some sort of oppression. Yoke was a, a picture of what you put on an animal. It's exactly what you may think of. You put it on an oxen. And at this time, as the people of God were kind of wondering, what is our relationship to God like? God is like, hey, do you want to know what relationship to me looks like? Stop focusing on yourself and look outward. There's oppression all around you. People are being beaten down. There, there is a pressure. Liberty is being diminished. And it is easy to look at a passage like this and think, okay, well, to take the yoke off is to drive. What does liberty mean? Does it mean to, to give people just simply money? Does it to give them resources? It, it's far more than that. I think in our time and culture, we can simply think that what this is putting forward is to say, is liberty moving people towards the American dream? Or is the gospel more indifferent than the American dream? There's a, a new, brand new TV show out right now called Undercover Billionaire. It's like, okay, how can we take Undercover Boss and just change it, basically? Discovery Channel is doing this. I watched it. I watched the preview for it in the middle of my Shark Week episodes the last few weeks. Undercover Billionaire is this. It's to move, and this is literally what they quote. They said this, is, this specific man who's a billionaire he, he takes on rags with only $100 in his pocket, and he goes to a small town to prove that the American dream, dream is still alive, to see with just $100 in his pocket, to sleep in his car, and to actually try and make it again, to see if he can become and show people how to become a millionaire billionaire through that American dream. Now, it can be easy in our mindset that when we talk about the gospel, the good, this this good news, the fast that I choose to loose the bonds, that kind of thing, and our culture to put that on, it's not at all what that is talking about. To break the yoke is a lot bigger than that. It's a lot more. It's not just to give a dream, American dream, to say, you get all you want. It's actually even beyond that. The gospel, the good news does this. It says that there's someone who doesn't just give you stuff, that he gives you himself. This is actually what we're proclaiming. See, what the, the consistent thing and where sometimes we feel like caring for the poor and Christianity have missed and sometimes it's we completely go or beyond it is that word contribution. In our culture, what it means to make it, it means what are you contributing? That's the American dream. That's what this TV show is. How do you take what you got and make it more? Okay, that's great, but is the gospel about your contribution? That's what most of us think. Even if we talk about grace, even if we come to a church or service, even if we con we're consider ourselves a follower of Jesus, it is so often for us to say, okay, God has brought this great message to us, but what are you contributing? And this is what you see historically that even people say, well, Christianity kind of falls short because it doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. But if we think about what, why this connects so well, why is this good news? Because it distinguishes, it's not about our gifts, our values, and our contribution back. 
It's about the God of heaven, the Lord and creator of the universe. This is the simple gospel who has come to you, who has said, I've come to die for you. And this is why it's so connective to the poor. This is the yoke that it initially takes off and to say, this is who does it, that God himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, comes to die and then not only do that, to equip you to do his work. What a powerful thing to those who have nothing, who might be poor and don't think they can contribute anything. He says he equips through the Holy Spirit and then he says, I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to set this whole world right. For so many of us in this room, we may not have encountered that simulation, that even experience of being poor, of really being in need, and maybe you have. And if you have, you know what it's like to be in dependence at all, and it freaks us out, and it can scare you. But this is what it really means. That's the good, this is why it's good news. Because it's learning to care about what does God care about. God doesn't just care about you living out the American dream. He cares about you living in relationship to him. Jesus said himself first that the poor will always be with you. What does he mean by that? He says, he's saying that the poor, that is always going to be a dynamic. As long as there is sin in this world, there is going to be poverty. It is going to be around us. And so we need to know God cares about the poor. He cares about those who are impoverished because he cares about those who are oppressed, who know that they can't contribute anything. Because it's so easy for those of us who have so much to contribute and feel like we give to it that we forget our actual need for the gospel. That this is all about the fact that someone came and died for us because we can't give anything back. And what we do give back is in a response to the amazing news that we have, not in order to warrant the news for us. That's the power of it. It says in the Bible that God has a fourfold group that he cares about. He cares about the fatherless. He cares about the widow. He cares about the alien, those who are landless or without country. And he cares about the poor. And he is adamant all through the scripture about these groups that he protects. Why? Because none of them can protect themselves. God reminds us that he's the protector. Those who are humbled and know that he protects them, he does. And it's an outward working. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, he's kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis. He wrote it this way. He said, Christianity is not centripetal, it's centrifugal. In other words, the force begins inward and goes outward, not outward inward. Many religions, philosophies, and ideologies in in their day, and this is the difference, are centripetal. The force moves from outside inside, but Christianity is the force is to be worked inside out. Here's the difference. I ran track, um, and one of the many things that I, I did was I threw the discus and the shot put. And in order to get those things, and you can see me, I don't, you would not think shot put discus thrower if you you saw me. But the way that I could throw and um, learn, there 
the style is technique of how to get the discus and the shot put moving as fast as possible and then away from my body. So it's beginning this force and spinning this way, finally releasing and throwing that away from my body. That's where all the force comes. It's not the size, it's technique. That's actually centrifugal force. That's the force beginning here and releasing outward. Centripetal force is more like an ice skater. An ice skater who begins, and you notice an ice skater who may revolve when they do a spin outwardly, but when they draw their arms inward and their legs inward, what happens? They speed up. Christianity is centrifugal. The force is outward. It's to move within us because this gospel that we proclaim is so powerful, it is not meant to go outward, inward. It begins inward, outward. And if we aren't seeing the centrifugal force of that powerful gospel moving outward, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand our own poverty itself? Do we know what it is? Because this is what he says, it's practical. He says, is this not the fast I choose? God doesn't just remain in ideology. He mo- God himself moves practically. The fast that he choose. Now, some commentators have gotten, in my opinion, lost on that and thought, well, is this God, is this where God is saying we don't need to fast anymore? That is not what this is saying at all. In fact, it's saying what we need to understand is what Jesus talked about with a lot of the Pharisees and scribes, that they would come up and they would talk about how much they would tithe and how much they would fast and how much they were doing in their communities. And Jesus said, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. That is, he desires the centrifugal, the outward working, the mercy, the compassion. What compassion is, is passion toward those outward than just simply bringing a sacrifice to the temple and doing it and leaving. Then it becomes simply piety in and of ourselves. Then it does exactly the opposite of what even the gospel is, that someone outside of us came in flesh and took this on for us to do. And notice that he says even in verse 7, he says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? It gets deeply practical really quick to bring the homeless and poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your flesh. To share, to bring, to cover, and to not hide. Look, there's an immediate and individual giving is this moving outward. And, And let's talk about it for a minute. In our city right now, one in five Nashvilleans are living in poverty. One in five. One in three children are living in poverty right now. 19 to even, I think it's 20 plus percent now, because this was a couple years ago. 19% of Nashvilleans are living in poverty. There is a practical need around us. And the difference in what we're providing as a church isn't simply the money we give, which is fantastic. And we can click buttons, and we can do it through social media, and it's fantastic. But the difference that I want to present to you is something that may be uncomfortable for you as much as it may be for me as well, is that the gospel is about flesh. It's about us touching. It's, it's It's not our contribution, but our cost. It's showing that we come incarnate as Jesus came incarnate. And poverty looks a myriad of ways. Poverty isn't just the money part. 
You know, poverty is described in a, in a multitude of ways. In the early 90s, there was an American seminary student that visited Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa. And it's a, a, a beautiful story. And she was incredibly surprised by her, her advice. The student told Mother Teresa that upon graduation, she intended to enter a medical school so that she could, could return overseas and help treat lepers over in Calcutta. She thought this would please Mother Teresa, but instead, Mother Teresa said, why do you want to do that? There's poverty in your country that is just as severe as the poorest of the poor. And the student wasn't exactly sure what she meant since India seemingly had more poverty than America. But Mother Teresa continued and said this, in the West, there's a loneliness, which I call the leprosy of the West. In many ways, it's worse than our poor in Calcutta. It, look, poverty isn't just monetarily thinking, it's, and that's what we typically think, but it's actually socially poor, vocationally poor. Think about how many of you, even in this room, have gone through job changes or even a lapse in jobs and how, much it, how difficult it has been. Think about the isolation, the social poverty that we feel. Even if you have money in your account, you can feel incredibly lonely. Do you know that there are articles saying now that in the last, that no one in our culture, that this is incredible percentage of people who don't, have not made a new friend in the last five years of their life because we don't even know how to have, have friendships. I mean, they're making TV shows about friendships to try and get people talking about friendships. And this isn't even in the church, this is just in our culture. How are we identifying poverty around us? How are we seeing it and moving into it? Obviously, there's economic poverty, but some of you have even done this. Some of you have done this in your connect groups that we have. Some of you have recognized this in the relationships, and I've talked to you about it. Some of the, the people who are leading, the people who have gone through marital, major marital crises, things who've gone through job loss, People who've gone through child loss, the poverty that exists in there, and even in your neighborhoods. So many of you have just reached, even in your neighborhoods, seeing the need that's going on. It's not about trying to find some big social cause. The Bible's not saying that. It's not saying you need to start a program. It's just saying, do you just see those that are in need and just become incarnate to move into life with them? Because what are we to become in practice is exactly what it says in verses 8 through 10. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Look, this is who we are. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you are light, you are healing. It's not something you need to just be a part of, it's something you've been equipped with because of the good news of Jesus, because of who he is. And this breaks forth. That I love this, and it lets me geek out for a minute, because when it says the light and the darkness, it's saying it breaks forth like the dawn. It's, it's like that, it, 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 the actual Hebrew means to erupt, that the light erupts. It's that moment when, if you've ever woken up early enough, and I'm sure many of us have lately, and you see the sun just, just peek over the horizon, and all of a sudden it's just boom, beams. 
Different than when it was just a glowing before. It just went over. And it reminds me of the scene from J.R. Tolkien's the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers. And if you haven't read it, it's fine. I'll be a nerd and tell you about it. But it's this great, you know, made these incredible movies about it. There's a scene in the second one that they, they, the director, even um, Peter Jackson, directed beautifully, I think. When all is lost, the, the men and elves have been in Helm's Deep. It's this guarded wall that they thought they were safe in from all of the evil, these orcs, these bad evil that have been oppressing them. They have broken through the wall and they have continued to overnight, continued to slaughter those behind the wall. And then they ride out. They think, oh, we've got to escape. They ride out of Helm's Deep. And as they are, the dawn breaks over and because of the darkness, it begins to shine over this light and you see at the top those who are coming to their aid, their rescue, and all those below who are the evil that are trying to overcome the hobbits and elves and the men in Helm's Deep, it just it scatters them. It pushes them back. That is the picture. It's that breaking. It just pushes, the, it, it penetrates. It doesn't point out the darkness. It penetrates the darkness. And that's what you are. You and I are to penetrate the darkness that we see around us. And many times, though, I find that we point out the darkness without penetrating it. Because we say there's a need there, or that's a problem. And that's what so much of Christianity has been identified as over the years, is, is that we talk about what more of what we aren't for rather than what we are for. To be light means we penetrate. It means we move into. It means we're effective. It's, it's not, the difference between what it's saying here and creating this sharing and healing and, and, and these kind of things is not a utopian society. A utopian society has social perfection at its center. Look up the definition if you need to be reminded. That's what it is. At the center of this is the person and work of the Lord himself. It's not about social perfection. It's about manifesting what the kingdom of God is to be. You know, that's what the church is. We're actually supposed to reflect light of what it actually is supposed to look like as God is God. This is why it's so powerful for us to actually do the works of God in the city is because we're showing, hey, God cares about this. We're reflecting it. You don't look at the sun to find light. The sun itself provides light so that you can see everything else by it. Isn't that what it is? We reflect the light of the, of the Lord Jesus into our world. C.S. Lewis said it beautifully. He said, ineffective. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. The more our minds are cast on the one who's, what is in the middle? What do we praise? If we first put eradicating poverty in the middle, we'll miss it. But if we know that he's there, if we know that we're reflecting that light, then we can address poverty knowing, as Jesus said, the poor will always be with you until I return. The light penetrates it. It defeats it. 
It goes into it. And that's where it even says here that your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing, your healing shall spring up speedily. The picture of healing there is the actual Hebrew word of repair work. It means, and this sounds a little graphic, but it means that there's new flesh or new skin that has grown over a wound. That's actually what we're supposed to be. (laughs) That sounds kind of gross. But isn't that what it looks like? I know my boys, when I'm trying, when they have a wound or a cut or something, it's so hard to get a Band-Aid on them or any sort of ointment because they'd rather just sit with the wound. And so it's a struggle and to calm them down and then to put the Band-Aid over and then to days later to show them when you put Neosporin or whatever you need to put on it and you remove it and they see that the wound is healing and you kind of remind them, hey, remember how you were hurting and you didn't want me to help? We need to be reminded that the Lord is saying we are light. We are the repair work that he sends out into, into the world to teach all those around us because we've received it. We can't forget that the healing has been brought to us. We can't forget what God has done in us. You know what the number one thing most people who are uh, in poverty want? It's not the resources. If you meet with people who are in those places, the resources are great, but what is constantly brought back is they don't just want things, they want relationship. They want us. And we need them. We need people in our lives to touch us in those places of poverty because the things are not the repair work. They're things. The repair work is you. And it's those people around you that give you in your poverty, just as this one in his incarnate gives you that. Look, I was reading, um, there used to be a church uh, under a bridge in Waco I remember visiting once or twice. Uh, it was fascinating to see just people gathering under a bridge and actually having a worship service and somebody preaching, and it was amazing. I went online to see if it was still a, a church, and uh, I was reading all this stuff about I thirty five that runs from um, you know between Dallas and Austin and connects Waco in the middle is under major repair. And so this church has been dislodged. I mean, they have no place to go. And I read, this is not just a pronoun, I read that their temporary home at the moment is Magnolia Farms. That Chip and Joanna Gaines have literally said, you know what, Sunday mornings, it's yours. They have opened up the silos or whatever they have for them in that morning and said, this is yours. And there was a celebratory march you can watch on video of this church moving from that place into this great complex that they have. And you know what's been beautiful about that? It's not so much that they're just giving them a place uh, with resources and such. They're moving them to a place of worship because they realize that there's more than just things that can be given. This passage ends with this. Listen to this. Verse 9, Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. That is astounding language for this reason. 
God does not put himself in that position. The Hebrew for this language was only the language of slaves or servants. God is actually putting himself to say, whenever you call, I will answer. It's almost like if I took a poll to see who, who's like the most, you know, famous person you would have on your, in your phone. And we could all kind of go around this room and say, I know so-and-so, I know so-and-so. Well, this is actually saying that upon beck and call, the Lord of the universe puts himself in a place of serving us by answering. That's what this table is. This is what we proclaim that's different. It's, it's, not, it's not a program, it's a person. But it does push us to practice this gospel in centrifugal force to go out because Jesus himself put himself in a place of being a servant. As 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, that he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. Jesus himself in flesh took on poverty both physically, spiritually, emotionally, vocationally. He went into those places that may even make you uncomfortable. That may even make you feel as though, I don't know if I can do this. This is the Savior. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, this is the Savior you're proclaiming. The one on the cross was not one of notoriety. He was not one of beauty. He was not one of majesty. He was one of poverty because he took on our poverty that you can taste the wealth that you have in him. That's how we come to this table, as all beggars. And as we come taste this bread and this wine, we are all laid bare before the one who has taken on our poverty and made us all wealthy in him. If that's true, then we can lean into one another in the same.